take a complex problem like serving the underserved, multiple hospitals, primary care, social services agencies, public health may come together to solve that problem. But in the course of their conversations, they discover there's so much more that they could do on the basis of having formed this group that now has some shared perspective. Several things that, that, that we identified, uh, certainly a sense of trust that people will cooperate with each other. Also, uh, you know, sort of a, a shared vision what healthcare can be, that it doesn't have to be this, you know, fragmented mess that it often is in many parts of the, the U.S., but actually people can pull together, do things together, especially in areas that, that tend to fall between the cracks, like the care of people who are uninsured. This is Mission to Scale, a podcast that reveals the tools, mindsets, and strategies that organizations and funders need to make the most impact because the world's biggest problems need solutions at scale. I'm your host, Dan Borelovitz. The issue of healthcare, particularly here in the US, is complex and polarizing. But while the statement would be hard to argue with in broad brushstrokes, it doesn't paint the entire picture. What's not often highlighted across mainstream media is the idea of collaboration, partnership, and the willingness of not one, but multiple sectors to address community health and healthcare delivery. In this episode of our special series with Stanford Social Innovation Review, or SSIR, We're speaking to two of the co-authors of the SSIR article, Dynamic Strategies for Successful Health Collaboratives. We talked to Ruth Wagman, Associate of the Department of Psychology at Harvard University, and Gary Hirsch, an author and independent consultant based in Wayland, Massachusetts. But why do some health collaboratives succeed while others fail? On the show, Ruth and Gary help us identify the conditions that make health collaboratives thrive, the challenges around funding, and the positive outcomes they hope to see from high-functioning health collaboratives. I often refer to myself as a recovering academic because I spent much of my life in the academic study of teams. That's been my focus, trying to understand what it takes to have brilliant collaborations. That's Ruth. So I started as a professor of management. And so I've been a professor at Columbia, at Dartmouth, um, and at Harvard in the field of organizational behavior. And so, you know, in my early work as a professor, what I was trying to do was to understand what are the actionable things that we can do that actually make a difference to a team's ability to accomplish great things together and actually be a place where where people learn and grow as a consequence of their work with other people. And was finding it pretty unsatisfying that a lot of models of teams are not very powerfully predictive of how well teams actually accomplish work. And they were also very heavily focused on on dynamics, on behavior. So there's a lot of stuff about trust and conflict and psychological safety and intervening like directly in the team process. And, And I think the evidence for those as points of intervention were really very slim. 
And so my colleagues and I took a very different approach, which was what we came to call conditions thinking, where we were asking, what are the conditions that you can create that you can deliberately put in place in the performance context and features of the design of the team itself that allows a team, which is a complex social system, to chart its own course to effectiveness. And so um, that turns out to be a pretty fruitful way of thinking about teams when you think about um, how do you stack the deck in favor of a collaboration producing something great, um, things that leaders and team members themselves can actually act on. So you've devoted your life to teams, team building. Where does that passion come from? You know, I used to joke that the reason I spend so much time studying teams is I hate working in them, but that's not really true. It's 50% true. I would say about half of my experiences of collaborations um, result in things that any one individual in that team could have produced on their own. Um, but about half of them really do something extraordinary. And there's something really always enriching. I've had the great good fortune to always be surrounded by people who are smarter and more creative than me, like Gary and, and Kate and others. Ruth is talking about their co-author, Kate Isaacs, a lecturer at the MIT School of Sloan Management, who unfortunately was ill on the day of recording. I think what really energizes me about the work is to help people think better about the systems that they're dealing with often. And that's Gary. You know, I think the work I started off with in, in heroin addiction was, was a really good example where people would, um, instead of, you know, thinking through the problem, they would get on their different soapboxes and some would say, oh, you need more police. And others would say, oh, you know, you need better prevention, better education. Others would say, oh, you need treatment. And you'd have these different camps kind of yelling back and forth at each other. And we were able to show with our simulation model that we developed that none of those by themselves would be terribly effective. You really need to come up with a multifaceted strategy that, you know, at, at lower cost and gr much greater effectiveness would help deal with the, the problem. And um, just helping people think better uh, about the, the problems that they're dealing with, I think, is you know, a, a big, big motivation. Would love to hear your thoughts on the three of you. How the three of you really work together to make this piece more than the sum of its parts? I think we had a combination of two things. One is a shared passion for something that we wanted to accomplish together. In this case, it was trying to explain in a satisfying way that really explains why certain collaboratives take off and others fail, but also to say something really practical and useful to leaders about how they can think and act in ways that make these cross-organizational collaborations really thrive and able to increasingly accomplish great things over time. And so each of us, I think, bring a fundamental passion to that question and having that shared passion is what kept us going. And I think the other thing is very different perspectives and disciplines that we could bring to bear on these questions. And so, you know, so I bring the sort of structuralist perspective, which is, which is understanding that you can intentionally design social systems in ways that help them to be functional. I think Kate has a much more dynamic perspective. She actually has done quite a lot of work trying to understand the nature of the dialogue and interactions that happens in 
and that enable collaborations to get collective wisdom. And then Gary has this very unique perspective on systems and on system mapping and understanding the way that dynamic loops get created. And I think these three very different sort of disciplinary perspectives, you know, came together in pretty insightful ways. And you found that high impact collaboratives, they all share this characteristic of needing, uh, developing and growing capacity in some way. How do you think about capacity when it comes to a collaborative? I think that capacity is different from, I would distinguish it from, let's say, project success, right? So you can launch an initiative aimed at solving a particular problem, solve that problem and be done. What these collaboratives are doing and what we mean by collaborative capacity is that take a complex problem like serving the underserved, multiple hospitals, primary care, social services agencies, public health may come together to solve that problem. But in the course of their conversations, they discover there's so much more that they could do on the basis of having formed this group that now has some shared perspective. So for us, collaborative capacity is the ability in a community for institutions to work together to continue to solve increasingly challenging problems over time and to create, in many cases, a sort of institutionalized body that is the natural place for additional problems or additional aspirations to come to. And the capacity really is about the ability and the resources to tackle each of these things as they arise. And then when that capacity is built and you've got these strong bonds between different organizations in a community, what role does that collaborative then play in terms of creating long-term or scaling impact? Yeah, I think, you know, it's multiple roles that they play. One is just in noticing and identifying opportunities to make things better, right? So once you've got different members of the system able to talk about a problem together and to lay it on the table in front of other people who are part of the system, they can develop an increasingly broad and aspirational vision for how good things possibly could be. That's one function that they actually serve. Another really critical function is mobilizing the resources to do that. So it might be the collective will to tackle that problem, but there's also lots of practical things like creating the kind of information infrastructure that makes it possible to even monitor whether you're making any progress, um, bringing together people who can actually work on that stuff and creating these sort of cross-organizational um, project groups and collaborations that can actually tackle the work. So that's the function that they serve. So instead of it being under like a single hospital or public health umbrella, these collaboratives make it possible to draw resources wherever they're available and wherever they're needed to deploy it to get things done. So then what do you think are the, the just really core necessary conditions for success for that collaborative to be successful, that they should really strive to set up from the very start? Well, I, I think they, they need to um, have several things that we identified. Uh, certainly, a sense of trust uh, that, that people will collaborate uh, and will cooperate with each other. Also, uh, you know, sort of a, a shared vision uh, that, you know, what, what healthcare can be that it doesn't have to be this, you know, fragmented mess that it often is in many parts of the, the U.S., but actually people can pull together and, and do things together, especially in areas that, that tend to fall between the cracks, like the care of people who are uninsured. 
And um, having a um, kind of the necessary infrastructure really is another key piece. The, um, you know, what's often referred to as a backbone uh, organization. You know, someone's got to do the work. And sometimes uh, that can be done by people drawn from organizations that are, that are part of the collaborative. They'll lend people, or, but there has to be the capacity uh, to do that either, you know, by dedicated staff or by our own staff. But they, you can't just sort of layer additional responsibilities on people who are already busy. You've got to really identify how the work is going to get done. And um, Kate was saying there has to be the information uh, infrastructure that lets you see, you know, where the problems are, how potential solutions uh, might affect those problems, and then also tr- track the progress you're making against those problems and, and feed that back to the community. Uh, there has to be a, a sense that you're accomplishing something. And that, that's really where the dynamic perspective is especially important. Uh, it's fine to launch a bunch of projects, but the community you know, for, to keep the, the, the stakeholders involved, you really have to have the sense that you're accomplishing something as a collaborative. I know on boards, and I don't know how analogous the board conversation is, but a board is a is a form of team and collaboration. When you have more diverse board members across a whole range of different uh, factors, race, gender, you make better decisions. The evidence shows you make better decisions, but also the conversations are more challenging and it takes more work to get there, which is why I think you know the easy option is to have your, your uniform boards, which you know tend to be white male, of course. How does that apply within this space? Because I guess health collaboratives are working with existing systems, so it's going to have all the dynamics or the diversity that those systems have already, which we can. I think it's probably safe to imagine are not overly diverse in many cases. How do those two things interplay, the sort of diversity of the collaborative, and how can you bring that in? How important is it? That's a really great question, and it's also really complex literature if you read the research literature on diversity. So one of the things that we know is that it's actually cognitive diversity that results in better decision-making. And just because you look different or come from different backgrounds does not necessarily mean you have different perspectives. We did find something very similar to what you're citing there, which is it is certainly easier to arrive at a common purpose or to get through a decision-making conversation if you come from the same part of the system. And if you've got a relatively narrow focus, it's easier to find a not terribly diverse set of players that can agree on that and, and do it. The cost of that in the long run is that you wind up having a relatively narrow vision and you also don't have really critical players or stakeholders in the system involved in the questions as you're trying to define them and take action on them together. So, I, I mean, this is, I think, a pattern of findings across different kinds of collaborations, which is less diversity makes it easier to agree, but it narrows what you're you know, what your capacity is to actually accomplish anything, right? And so, you know, we've seen a lot of collaboratives that start with quite a broad set of players in the system, and they can have pretty rocky starts. It's not necessarily easy for them to get it together and define something that we can do together. But once they have done that, they have a much broader array of resources and they have I'll let Gary speak to this. What they bring is an understanding of the complexities of the whole system which a, a narrow group of people can't have. It, a very important uh, kind of diversity uh, is really the, the patient or consumer uh, perspective. 
because uh, <laughs> I think where, where healthcare often falls down is that it, it's got very elaborate institutional structures, but those don't necessarily meet the needs of patients. They, they tend to meet more, more the needs of institutions. And uh, so patients' needs need to be represented, uh, especially patients with extensive needs, and especially also, I think, patients with social needs as well as healthcare needs because the, the two are very, very closely uh, intertwined. People in difficult social circumstances are, are going to have uh, complex healthcare problems. And uh, unless their needs are understood you know, by some representation in the collaborative, whether it's through an organization or just having people on the boards who you know, have the lived experience of having a difficult time getting healthcare with health problems, um, you're going to have solutions that meet the needs of the institutions, but not necessarily those patients. And you've talked about one of the most critical pieces of infrastructure, this backbone organization. Did you find the backbone organization existed in these communities already, or did it need to be set up? How did the backbone enter into the picture? I think in most of the examples that we studied, it was birthed as part of the collaborative. It was created usually kind of on a shoestring from the beginning that one or more organizations kind of donates some people's time or donates some space where they can work and sort of building from there. So in many cases, once a project was successful, it might attract some outside funding, which makes it possible to build more of a, a sort of coordinating management group that can continue to do projects and lead work. There are some that we saw, however, that identified existing, you know, small organizations already there within the community that already could be part of this capacity to take on work. So it didn't have to, in all cases, be born from scratch. Some of the more dexterous collaboratives were able to think about, well, we may not necessarily own that, but they could become part of this collaborative and provide some of those resources and develop that kind of uh, what's come to be called a backbone organization or backbone structure for getting things done. To keep people in this collaborative, it's clear that they need appropriate reward structures and this single feedback loop. Can you give us some examples of the sort of rewards that really make the biggest impact in terms of keeping the collaborative together and then getting it you know, to move on and do ever more good things within the system that they're trying to change? So um, you'll note in the paper that we describe collaborative capacity as being a function of the ability of a collaborative to get things done, but also the motivation to stay part of it and to continue to get things done. And there are really two kinds of rewards that build motivation. One is just the intrinsic rewards of success at solving a problem that really matters to the community. And don't underestimate that. So the feeling that we've contributed our time and energy to creating this great impact, and we've actually seen because we held an event and we looked at the data from the last few months and were reflecting together on what we've learned from that, there's a lot of internal motivation that gets built just from that experience of making progress on what seemed to be intractable problems before. And then there's the the more tangible rewards that actually make a difference. And Gary, I wonder if, if you could speak to some examples of how financial rewards, for example, could become part of this. Well, I think a really good example uh, is uh, the fact that, you know, for people without health insurance, when they, when they show up at the emergency room, the hospital is obligated to treat them anyway. And 
can lose quite a bit of money on that group of people. So uh, programs that a collaborative might put in place that would uh, provide people with good primary care, preventive care, and so on, and keep them out of the emergency room would actually save the uh, hospital some money. Just uh, from my own personal experience, uh, sort of wearing another hat, uh, I, I helped to run a free clinic uh, in an area west of Boston. And uh, we've been able to get uh, various uh, things from the local hospital, uh, you know, arguing that we're helping to keep patients out of their emergency room and patients on whom they would be losing money. And uh, I think it's a meaningful motivation for hospitals to then support these kinds of programs. So that's certainly one example for insurers who might be participating, uh, their obvious uh, savings. Again, in one, one area we worked, uh, actually one of the collaboratives, a uh, uh, colleague and I actually did some work in that area looking at uh, improved care for chronic illness, uh, diabetes, and heart failure. And a uh, local insurer was quite happy to contribute money to that effort because they saw it saving them money in the, in the long run. Another motivation as well. So lots of different motivations. I'm sure things like data as well and other pieces are, are useful to the group. I want to talk about money because I was just struck that these collaboratives, a lot of it seems to be driven by finding incredibly scarce resource for this sort of initiative, even though this initiative can be really impactful, sort of way outsized versus uh, the size of the organization. Why is it so difficult to fund these things? Well, they, they often sort of are operating in areas that uh, that fall through the cracks. I mean, it's a vast amount of money going into healthcare, but it's usually for particular organizational arrangements and for hospitals, physicians, and so on. And uh, the problems that they they try to tackle are ones that uh, for which there isn't a funding stream, and so they've got to be very creative about creating uh, those funding streams. Uh, more recently, as, as we uh, mentioned in the article, there is a new structure that's uh, that's been put in place called uh, accountable care organizations that uh, actually make a, a group of, of healthcare providers responsible for a population and provide a certain amount of money. And if they can serve that population effectively and keep down the cost of care, they can receive some some fraction of the savings that they they generate so there are beginning to be better mechanisms for uh, funding these kinds of activities uh, and they uh, are able to um, basically fund activities for which there, there hadn't been a been a stream before we're starting with hugely complex systems maps here and you probably you know you're speaking to each different person within the collaboration or organization and they're bringing multiple concerns forward so you start with this very complex map and then you need to distill it down into the what two or three areas that are going to make the biggest difference for the collaborative just really practically how do you take that mess and turn it into something that everyone can really sort of get their hands around and make progress on well, I, I think you, you try to find uh, leverage points. Uh, you know, again, these, these feedback loops are, are very important uh, for that. You know, what are the, the growth processes that can contribute to change? What are the major sources of resistance against change? And uh, look for leverage points, you know, within those, those growth processes. Uh, what would drive it? What would resist it? And, and so on. And um, 
discern, you know, where, where some of those leverage points uh, are. And again, uh, you know, we're spending huge amounts of money on hospitals and too little on, on primary care. So it's looking at where access to primary care, uh, most efficient, uh, most effective uh, form of care is lacking and, and uh, concentrating. It's a, a good example of, of where communities often often find leverage that you know, people aren't getting care until they get very sick and then end up in the emergency room, end up needing surgery and, and so on. And so, you know, how can we get to them sooner and, and prevent some of the illness that's really driving healthcare costs? You conclude your article by talking about the importance of dynamic leadership, having the right leaders in place. What do you define as dynamic leadership and why is it so essential for a successful collaborative? I think dynamic leadership, first and foremost, is about understanding that an action has both intended and unintended consequences and being prepared to address those. So it's a way of thinking, you know, we talked about sort of linear checklists. It's a way of thinking that recognizes that timing and sequencing matters to the set of actions that you choose. So if I do something at time one, that's going to produce consequences that I can build on or that I might need to correct at time two. And so to be able to think kind of like a chess player, three or four, <laughs> three or four moves ahead and to be building strategies that recognize that there are interaction effects and that there are things that can build or kill momentum, that to me is the, the essence of dynamic thinking by leaders. Let's imagine a world where we have just incredibly well, high-functioning health collaboratives. What's the positive impact that you would hope to see in that future state? Well, ultimately, really affecting the, the outcomes that you'd have a, a healthier population, uh, especially uh, sort of a, a taking better care of those marginalized groups that have poor access to health care right now, that, that people uh, would be healthier, you'd have fewer people being admitted to hospitals for conditions that could have been prevented, fewer people dying from uh, conditions that, that could have been uh, prevented. Uh, I think also better integration of uh, healthcare and various other services. Uh, one idea that's sort of become much more uh, popular right now is the idea of social determinants of health, that you know, housing matters, jobs matter, uh, education matters, and, and so on, and uh, doing more comprehensive planning that, that integrates healthcare with these various other services that together influence health. I was really struck when we started this work by a really troubling statistic, which is that in the United States, we are number one in the cost of healthcare per capita, and we are only 37th in the world in terms of the health of our population. So we are not getting what we pay for in terms of the massive amount of resources and the huge proportion of our GDP that we are pouring into rescuing people from illness. And you know, that just tells me that we have abundant resources and we are allocating them not terribly intelligently, right? So I would love to see the results of, of collaborative capacity around healthcare being that 
you know, we are not number one in the world in the cost of healthcare, but if we continue to be, that we also be number one in the world in terms of the well-being and the quality of life that our citizens live. I'm pleased you brought that up, Ruth, because that was really where I was going with this. I'm a Brit. I have been living in the US for five years, so I have experienced the health system firsthand, and it's not pretty. The national health system in the UK, the NHS, gets knocked, but I can promise you having a, a system like that seems to just function better for all, and particularly the most vulnerable, poorest people in a society. So what I was struck with reading this is that the work is wonderful. You know, these health collaboratives clearly are making a difference at a local level. But if we think about one level up of the system, maybe one or two levels up of the system, is there hope for the US health system? We're operating in such a broken context, particularly with sort of the private payers and the cost of insurance. Is there hope that we can change things just by operating at this level or do we need to do more? So maybe not just, um, maybe not just at this level. There are definitely policy decisions that could be made at a federal level that would make all of this considerably more effective. But, you know, when we undertook with Rethink Health and our colleagues a strategy of supporting regional collaboratives, it was with the knowledge that somewhere around 80% of the decisions that affect people's health are really made quite locally. They're made within the regions in which people live. And that's why we went into this with tremendous optimism that supporting these kinds of regional collaboratives to be successful is going to make a difference on both those critical outcomes, how much we spend, how we allocate those resources, and what is the well-being of people in the community. That is by no means saying there isn't more to be done. There certainly is more to be done, but this is a very powerful, in this health system, this is a very powerful mechanism for making change that would affect those dimensions. To close an incredibly insightful conversation on our topic, I asked Ruth to share one action we can all take away from this. I would say one of the things that I've observed is that when organizational leaders decide they really want to make a difference to some collective community problem, they always think about how can I start something? How can I begin an initiative to tackle that? And I would like them instead to say what's already going on in this community and how can I be a good partner at that table and go contribute to something that is already underway and become part of the momentum of building capacity rather than starting something new. If I can summarize the findings and thoughts shared in today's episode, I would say solutions to dynamic health collaboratives require a sense of trust, reward structures, and a truly multi-sectoral strategy. Having experienced the US health system firsthand, I for one am rooting for the success and growth of these collaboratives. If you want to dive deeper into the topics discussed today, get a copy of the summer 2022 issue of the SSIR magazine available on May 26. You can read the article co-written by Gary, Kate and Ruth, Dynamic Strategies for Successful Health Collaboratives. A link to purchase the magazine is in our show notes. And of course, you'll find many other fascinating articles in there too. Before we go, we'd like to thank SSIR for the work that they do 
for partnering with us in this series. If you love Mission to Scale, please recommend our show to a friend or colleague. You can subscribe or follow our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Mission to Scale is produced by Spring Impact and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at Spring Impact, visit springimpact.org and follow us at Spring Impact on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us and I'll catch you in our new episode next week. Thank you.